Hello, and welcome to Glory Be. Interesting people and how they pray. Each week, we chat with interesting people about their lives, their work, and how they pray. I'm Sharon Hanish. And I'm Mike Malcolm. Our guest today is Nick Bernard. Nick grew up attending Marquette Catholic School in the Parish of Christ the King here in Tulsa, Oklahoma. He graduated from Bishop Kelly High School in 2016 and holds a dual degree in theology and Catholic studies from St. Louis University. After graduation, Nick spent a year as a novice with the Society of Jesus, after which he worked at Bishop Kelly as a substitute teacher and campus minister. Currently, Nick is studying as a seminarian for the Diocese of Tulsa in eastern Oklahoma. He just finished his first semester at St. Minard Seminary in southern Indiana. Nick loves to read, to practice weightlifting, to re-watch some Marvel, the same Marvel movies over and over, and to try to be friends with his cat, Miss B. <laughs> Welcome, That's Nick. Hilarious. We're so happy you're here. You're on break from seminary, Christmas break. You just finished yes, up I some am. finals. so I did. We had um, finals last week, and so this is my first week back in Tulsa since our break. Okay, so how was your very first uh, semester in seminary in southern Indiana? It was wonderful. I think that in an important way, um, being a seminarian at St. Minard melted a lot of the stereotypes I had about what, what that experience would be. I, before starting the semester, probably couldn't have even named to you, you know, what, what my expectations were, but... As I lived there, I found that I don't know that the central thing of the experience was that it was so normal. Mm-hmm. Um, that's sort of a boring word to choose, but I found that it it was really just a community of humans living together and succeeding and making mistakes and just like being being exactly who they were. So describe so your uh, this particular seminary all men. All young men discerning priesthood. It's not like when you were at St. Louis University where there would be men and women studying Catholic studies or whatever. So this is how many how many people, like how many seminarians are studying at St. Minor? Do you know? Sure. There are about 127, um, 130-ish. Most of them are diocesan seminarians, like me. They are from... Diocese over most of the eastern half of the U.S., Oklahoma is actually one of the more western places um, that sends seminarians to St. Minerid. I also study with a couple Carmelite brothers, just four, but they're from Wyoming. And then I study alongside some of the monks in the St. Minerid community, too. St. Minerid is <coughs> excuse me, um, an arch abbey. And, and a seminary, and so they neighbor each other. Um, I'm not a monk. The monks are my neighbors, but the monks are also some of my teachers, too. They, they live on one side of campus, and we live on the other, and then we see them a lot during the day at classes and at meals. And do you have, like, your own room, or do you share, I mean, is it like a dorm? Sure. It's, it's halfway between a dorm and a department. So I, I have my own room um, in my own bathroom, and so does everybody else, but I live on a long hallway um, probably with like 30 guys in my hallway. So there's there's a good mix of like, I can really easily go out and be in community or I can say, everybody leave me alone. <laughs> I just need a minute. <laughs> Mike is nodding his head. Yeah, that former student, Go Ravens. Go uh, Ravens. St. <laughs> Minerid, in fact, if 
Fun fact, it is the most prestigious Catholic school in this whole state of Indiana. <laughs> I'm teasing Sharon because there's she sends her kids to some place up north. Oh, I don't called know. No- University of Notre Dame. Oh, okay. oh, yeah. oh yeah. I <laughs> you might not have heard of that. I keep Catholic on forgetting school. its name. But so you're in pre theology right now? I am. Okay. And what does pre theology mean? Sure. Pre-theology, um, the name means before theology, of course, mm-hmm. but to study to be a priest, um, priests need to study theology for four years, and then prior to that, one of two things usually happens. Um, if a guy enters the seminary discernment process right out of high school when he's 18 or 19, he'll go to college for four years um, and study philosophy and just kind of normal college things, too. Some guys enter when they're not yet finished with college, but they've started. Um, they'll go to the, or, um, they'll go to philosophy as well and study some philosophy in college. I am an example, sort of, of the second type of thing. I had mm. graduated already. Um, I had a degree, and then I had done a few other things before I became a seminarian. So, I entered into a stage of formation called pre-theology. At Saint Minor, we usually call it philosophy, j- just because I'm getting a master's degree in philosophy. Um, but th- those are interchangeable names. Yeah. I didn't realize that. So you, even though you have this degree in theology and Catholic studies from St. Louis University, you still have to go do some philosophy. You did tell us about this degree. So, yeah. So you could backing up. You can talk about your vocation story. So um, I know you've been you were very involved in youth ministry at Bishop Kelly. You led retreats. Um, So then you go to SLU and you study theology and Catholic studies. So when did you kind of start to discern priesthood? So high school, you're drawn to this deep desire to know, love, and serve God more deeply. So you go to SLU and you get this theology degree. Um, Yeah, just kind of talk about your journey, what's brought you to seminary. Sure. I I used really um, not to, to want to be a priest. I was opposed to that. Throughout my young life, a lot of like nice old ladies at church would say things like, oh, you'd be a great priest. And I was like, you know what? You should leave me alone because <laughs> I, I don't want to do that. Um, but definitely in high school and in college as well, I found within myself a really powerful desire um, to be a Christian, if nothing else. And and I learned what that meant. I learned what it mean, meant to know Jesus as a person and not this kind of historical figure or not this system of ideas or not this political philosophy or something. Um, but a person that I lived alongside, I remember <coughs> that my vision of the priesthood was probably informed really narrowly for a long time. I I grew up in, in Oklahoma and, and the church here comparatively can be small compared to somewhere like New York City or Chicago. Um, and so I knew a number of priests, but really only a few. I went to college in St. Louis, and people joke that it's the Rome of the West, um, and it kind of is. The, every, everything is Catholic, and it's all woven together really tightly. Um, but I remember a moment in college when, when my vision of the priesthood began to shift. I had previously seen the priesthood, I don't know, sometimes as something angry, or sometimes as something kind of militant or sort of aggressive, um, but I remember this moment, I was doing my homework, but not really, because I was just thinking and staring out the window. And I started to pray about like the Good Shepherd as the model of the priest. And 
how there was something like intimate and gentle about that. And that, that was the beginning of, of what drew me to the priesthood was that sort of gentleness of the good shepherd. Um, that certainly has been a central experience of Jesus for me. And then as I've discerned the priesthood has been a way that I, I want to live as Jesus in the world with that same gentleness. So you go and you discern the Jesuits first. Um, maybe you could describe sort of what the Society of Jesus is and how how they differ from the diocesan priesthood. Sure. I had never met <coughs> I had never met a Jesuit before college. Um, I don't actually think there is even one Jesuit who lives in Oklahoma. There, there might yeah, not I would, be. I, I think we, you're right. We do not believe there's any okay. Jesuits here. Yeah. Um, and, and so they don't live here, but they do live in St. Louis. There's quite a lot of them, and they taught me at my university, and they run the place. Um, a Jesuit priest is a member of a religious order. I, I don't think I had really met anyone in a religious order before college either, a diocesan priest um, makes a promise of obedience to a bishop of a certain geographical territory, a diocese. A religious priest, like a Jesuit or maybe a Dominican or a Franciscan, um, his obedience is to his community and to his order. And so a Jesuit priest could serve in any number of places within his region. The charism of the Society of Jesus hinges really centrally on the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius of Loyola. St. Ignatius lived kind of around the Renaissance period in Spain, um, and was a contemporary of, of people like Teresa of Avila and Francis Xavier. And Ignatius developed this 30-day silent retreat that, that takes someone really closely through the life of Christ. The central charism of the society, then, is drawing people into that, that kind of unity with Jesus through the exercises. The work of a Jesuit, in a lot of ways, is similar to a diocesan priest. He says Mass, and he performs the sacraments. Um, something different. A lot of Jesuits are teachers, and that that's probably what they're most publicly known for, all their universities, and they have like 53 high schools or, or some big number. Um, but there's, there's certainly a lot of teaching that goes on in the Society of Jesus. A diocesan priest is more likely to work at a parish um, and to build up a kind of local community in that way. Okay, so you, you spent a year with the Jesuits, um... And then you decided that you would take a break from that. You came to Tulsa, back to Tulsa, and you taught a little bit at Bishop Kelly and worked a little bit in campus ministry. Yes. And then you, were you continuing to work with a spiritual director to discern, I mean, when did you start thinking, maybe maybe I should look into my own diocese and see if I'm called to that? Sure. I remember um, I got home from the Jesuit novitiate on a Wednesday and I went to daily mass. It was the next day on a Thursday. Um, and I remember praying a little bit in mass and, and I was watching father David Webb say mass at Christ the King. And I don't even know if that was his, I don't, I don't actually know why he was there. I'm not even sure if that was his assignment, but I remember feeling something stir in me, um, that said the diocese. And, and at first I was like, okay, that's crazy. Like I just need to take a deep breath. I just got here. What's happening. But there was a really crucial moment for me in November of 2021. It was over Thanksgiving break, and, and this is going to make me sound really illustrious, which I'm not, but um, Bishop Muggenberg sent me an email <coughs> and asked if I wanted to go to lunch with him. And Bishop <coughs> Muggenberg, you can clear your throat while sure. yeah. <laughs> uh, Bishop Muggenberg, for our listeners, was a, a priest in our diocese who uh, 
was probably your pastor when you were growing up. Definitely. And then has since been named a bishop. Yes. And so he, this bishop emails me and says, do you want to go to lunch? And my dad says, you better reply soon. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And so as as I said, yes, of course I do. Um, And we went to lunch and I told him a lot about my experience in the Society of Jesus, my experience as a novice, my experience growing up. Um, Bishop Michael already knows a lot about me, gosh, since third grade or something. And, and, and so this was the crucial thing that he said to me. We, we were talking and he said, Nick, I don't know, you're the only one who really knows, but I think you might have a vocation still. A- and that changed my life, actually. That, that sounds kind of dramatic, but um, that was, I think, the first time anyone had said to me that, that I was the one who got to choose, that it wasn't... It wasn't the scary imposition from the outside. It wasn't this kind of cosmic puzzle piece. It wasn't like a curse. I, I wasn't like the chosen one. It, it was just something that I would ultimately elect. And I, I felt really empowered in that moment, but I also felt a lot of, well, not, but, and I also felt a lot of freedom um, to say like, well, my, my vocation will, like it will hinge on my own agency and it, and it has to be something that I love. It has to be something that I choose. And then my frame of the priesthood could shift from this this curse that all these old ladies had put on me after Mass, and I was doomed to do it, and oh no, if I had only prayed less or chosen a different <laughs> major, maybe they would leave me alone and I could be a dentist or something. But um, it, it, it now became something that I wanted, and something that, yeah, would be central to who I was. Well, that's kind of like marriage, too. You know, you choose to get married to the person. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a it's a choice. So I love that, you know, because there is this sense when you think someone it yeah. might, might have a vocation. Did you ever feel that way, Mike? Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Discernment was fantastic, and I had a a similar um, experience. It was Christmas Eve Mass when I was probably seventeen, and uh, after communion, singing um, "What Child Is This?" and the refrain uh, the in the refrain this is Christ the King, just thinking, if this is Jesus, then um, what am I doing about it? You know, the belief was there. I went to First Communion because my second grade teacher at Catholic school said, here's what we're going to prepare for, and then I received communion, and then First Confession time, I did all those things, but it was because someone else was pushing me. My parents drove me to Mass, so I went to Mass. But then I was uh, getting ready to adult and just had this epiphany moment right before Christmas, or right at Christmas vigil. And it was huge. And St. Meinrad was great to develop that further. So I, I really enjoyed the formation, but also the academics. Mm-hmm. You know, the classes. What was the, the um, most interesting class that you took this semester? Sure. The most interesting class was, um, it has a long title, it was called Human Development and Christian Maturity. Mm-hmm. And it was sort of like a psychology for ministry class. We looked at, in different phases of life, what are the human things that somebody needs and how does that inform their Christian identity? So when, when you are seven years old, you need something really different than when you're 17 or when you're 27. And how do kind of the, the innate things of humanity teach us what, what people, what their questions might be or what their needs might be in different parts of their life? You know, as we transition to kind of a follow-up to that, as we transition to how you pray, like, so you have a favorite class, but how did you pray? Did you pray as a group when you're 
at St. Minor's? Did you do personal prayer? Did you have a spiritual director? Talk about um, prayer in the seminary. Sure. Um, all three of those things, yes. So we, in the seminary, we pray in the Liturgy of the Hours together, um, some of it together and some of it privately. We pray morning and evening prayer together. I learned how to chant like a monk. It, 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 <laughs> it was difficult at first, but now it is, it's a really beautiful way for me to pray. Um, there's something kind of really quiet and rhythmic about praying the Psalms and the Liturgy of the Hours. And already, after just one semester, I find that a lot of the words of the Psalms give me language for the things that I really want to say to God or, or the things that I need to ask for or the things I have questions about. My private prayer at the seminary um, is usually just in my room, and and it's usually in my like big fluffy chair, and I just kind of stare out the window for a minute. Um, and then I do have a spiritual director as well. And so, do you have a? You mentioned in your bio, do you have a cat at seminary? Oh, or is this no. a cat you have here? At home? This, is, this is a cat at my at my family's house. So she she's a cat that we all share. Um, she lives in Tulsa, though, so okay. I, she doesn't live with me. Miss B is not a Hoosier. Miss B no, is she's not, not a Hoosier cat. She couldn't handle that. Yeah. You know, I, w- I think of you, so full disclosure, Nick is a friend of the family. He uh, was the confirmation sponsor for Anna, and anyway, friends with all of our children. So one of the things that you enjoy doing is photography. Mm-hmm. So uh, is that, is nature a way of praying is that where you find god in through the lens like talk about yeah is that a pra- ever a prayer for you sure photography is certainly a prayer for me yeah. um i i have done a lot of photography with, with catholic groups at liturgy or at conferences like like big exciting conferences or small kind of simple things too um vision has become something that i pray with just that the way that things look um, vision is a central metaphor through the ancient thinkers of, about knowledge and about intimacy. To, to see something is to understand it. And in photography, I certainly have that experience. I I see the world differently now as a, as a professional photographer for a minute and as a seminarian photographer now than I did otherwise or than, than I did before. So give me an example. You, you walk outside... At the seminary with your okay, camera. Sure. <laughs> Take us through how that would be a, a way of praying for you. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, one day, so it's only snowed one day this semester. I think it'll snow a lot in the coming months, which I'm a little nervous about. But it snowed one day in November. And so I walked around with my camera and prayed a little bit. And it's a lot of kind of noticing what's already there. Mm-hmm. If I were... Uh, maybe a sculptor or a painter, I, I, I could create something that wasn't there yet, and that's something really beautiful and exciting. Um, but photographers, I guess barring kind of really crazy Photoshop tricks, they they work with things that already exist. And the um, mode of photography is certainly the camera, but I, I kind of think that the medium is just reality. Um, the picture is made of something that was happening already, and so um, it makes me more aware of, of what God might be trying to ask me or to show me or even just what, what God has already done in my life. Well, I love that. So finding God in all things is something you might have heard when you were studying with the Jesuits. Certainly. Um, 
And you mentioned Ignatian contemplation. Do you, is that always also a way you pray still, or what draws your heart? Mm-hmm. When I was a Jesuit, um, I prayed as a Jesuit. Mm-hmm. Now uh, I'm in a different season, and, and I'm praying differently Is it Benedictine? As well. Is that my That's right? correct. Okay. And so the, the monks are Benedictine. Um, I don't quite pray exactly how they pray. Our, our liturgies are pretty Benedictine, but I've been really drawn in this season actually to the Carmelites. I I go to school with four Carmelites, so that's only a few. But um, in kind of the Carmelite masters of prayer, Teresa of Avila and John of the Cross, there is something attractive to me is kind of this mystic silence and this, this solitude that they're working within. Um, there's something really simple about that. And the crux of prayer then becomes just a, a being together with Jesus. That has been in my first semester of seminary, definitely the center of my prayer has been a simplicity of, I'm really just here and we don't have to do anything exciting. I just, I just want to be here with you. Mm. To be present. Definitely. So you're definitely drawn to the more contemplative side of prayer. I I am. Yep. Are you drawn to anything um, outside of that? Uh, like the the full Benedictine, they're known as kind of loud prayers, you sure, know, sure. all the the pipe organs and incense and all that mm-hmm. very uh, uh, sensory prayer. Uh, does that hold any um, special place for you? Um, it is. It, it's always exciting to be at a really big liturgy mm-hmm. with people. We we had a Byzantine liturgy this semester, and we had a special liturgy for Christmas time, and I got to sing in the choir at that. I mean, so those things are, are, are sort of electric and really, yeah. really magnetic. Um, and in my public prayer and in my communal mm-hmm. prayer, those are really awesome. Mm-hmm. I think that my personal prayer, though, is much more quiet. Yeah. It's in your room. Yeah. It's you and God Absolutely. in a conversation. Well, just, yeah, it sounds like you've got this really beautiful prayer life. Has prayer always come easy for you? Has there been a time in, in your life when it's been difficult to pray? Uh, there has. I think... Um, in the period after I, I left the novitiate, I, when I was a Jesuit, I had imagined, you know, that this is what my life will be like, gosh, until I'm like 34 years old, I know exactly what I'll be doing every year. Um, all of a sudden that, that wasn't true anymore. And, and it, and it, it wasn't good and it wasn't bad, but it was different. And so the first season after that, the first few months, I felt as if I had to learn how to pray once again. I had, I had definitely been praying in a lot of Ignatian ways, a lot of Jesuit ways, um, and there had been no question about it because because I was a Jesuit novice. Now, though, I had to ask again, like, well, gosh, do do I really want to pray like that? Nobody, nobody's making me. You know, yeah. I could I could do something different. Um, and there was a little bit of reinventing. In that space, I. I turned back to some of my favorite saints. I, I love Therese of Lisieux and her simplicity. And I think that I found that it, that what I wanted out of my prayer is something I, I described a moment ago, but just like kind of a central quietude. And and it was, my, I don't know, I felt my, my heart kind of jostling at first, feeling like, is, is that what I really want? Or am, am I cheating? Is this too easy? Should it be fun? Should it be more arduous? Should it feel like homework? Should it feel restful? Um, but yeah, in that period, it, it, it felt kind of, I don't know, I, I have the image of like when your shoes stick to the floor and you're, you're kind of, you're not sure what to do next. Oh, 
Okay, so you come through that. You begin to pray in a way that draws your heart, really, instead of being tied to the Ignatian or tied to what you thought you should be doing. Mm -hmm. And your heart opens. You end up in seminary. Um, So as a seminarian, you might describe to people, so you... How long does it take, you know, this this kind of discernment before you're ordained? Sure. The the process is at least, I want to say the right number, I'll be so embarrassed. Um, it is at least seven years now. Mm. And so there there is a new um, piece of formation they're adding. There's a new year before studies that I, I can't say everything about because I don't quite know, but... Um, it takes about six or seven years. The discernment throughout that is is really, I think, a discernment of your whole person. If I got up every morning in the seminary and I and I said, Lord Jesus, you know, today make St. Therese send me a red rose if I'm supposed to be a priest and a white rose if I'm not, and then nothing, nothing happened and I did this every day, it, it would get really exhausting and I would be so frustrated and my life would be kind of a wreck. Um that isn't what I do, and that, is, that isn't what any of my friends do either. It's really, I, I think, seeing more deeply, like, yeah, what, what, am I, what am I in love with? How do I want to love the world? Who am I? Um, and the best way to learn that, I think, is just by living an authentic life. I, I don't wake up every morning and ask these crushing questions. I, I wake up every, every morning, and I trust that I'll have the chance today to be who I really am. And in that, I'll begin to find the answers of, of what I need to do. That's great. That's insightful. Yeah, thank you. Well, as we close this podcast, you've been fantastic. Well, thank you. Uh, if you could invite all of our listeners and even the whole world to join you in a single prayer intention, what would that prayer intention be? I would say um, for unity. That was that was something I was thinking about yesterday. I, I was praying a little bit about it, actually, that in in the church and in our country, and, and, and I'm sure we could find so many places in the world, sometimes disunity and division, it seems really exciting because we're like, oh, those people are lame and we are so great. But that that has never been the wish of Jesus. And so I, I would want to pray for, for a unity among the world and for, I don't know, an understanding and and kind of a movement toward a union of humanity for sure. Well, would you be willing to lead us in a glory be, praying for those intentions? Absolutely. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as, as it was in the beginning, beginning is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much. Thank you, Nick. Great. Glory Be is a production of the Office of Communications at the Church of St. Mary in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I'm your producer, Mike Malcolm. See you next time.